John 4, verses 7 to 21. So, you are no longer a slave, but a son. And since you are a son, God has made you also an heir. Fortunately, when you did not know God, you were slaves to those who by nature are not God's. But now that you know God, or rather are known by God, how is it that you are turning back to those weak and miserable principles? Do you wish to be enslaved by them, or, over again, you are observing special days and months and seasons and years? I fear for you that somehow I have wasted my efforts on you. I plead with you, brothers, become like me, for I became like you. You have done me no wrong. As you know, it was because of an illness that I first preached the gospel to you. Even though my illness was a trial to you, you did not treat me with contempt or scorn. Instead, you welcomed me as if I was an angel of God, as if I were Christ Jesus himself. What has happened to you, all your joy? I can testify that if you could have done so, you would have torn out your eyes and given them to me. Have I now become your enemy by telling you the truth? Those people are zealous to win you over, but for no good. What they want is to alienate you from us, so that you may be zealous for them. It is fine to be zealous, provided the purpose is good, and to be so always, and not just when I am with you. My dear children, for whom I am again in the pains of childbirth until Christ is formed in you, how I wish I could be with you now and change my tone, because I am perplexed about you. Thank you, Kathy. That was beautifully read, but there is actually another reading as well, which I want to read, so if that's all right. So 1 John 4, 7 to 21. Okay. So, dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God, because God is love. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. This is how we know that we live in him and he in us. He has given us of his spirit. And we have seen and testify that the father has sent his son to be the saviour of the world. If anyone acknowledges that Jesus is the son of God, God lives in them and they in God. And so we know and rely on the love God has for us. God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in them. This is how love is made complete among us, so that we will have confidence on the day of judgment. In this world, we are like Jesus. 
There is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. We love because he first loved us. Whoever claims to love God yet hates a brother or sister is a liar. For whoever does not love their brother and sister whom they have seen cannot love God whom they have not seen. And he has given us this command. Anyone who loves God must also love their brother and sister. Let's start by praying. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you that you speak to us through it. And I pray that you would come now by your Holy Spirit, that you would reveal to us what you want to say through this passage. And I pray that at the end of this, we'd all go away a little bit more in love with Jesus. Amen. Wonderful. So tonight, we're talking about God and our relationships. And I noticed that this has the potential to be quite a personal topic. So as such, it didn't feel quite right to address it without first telling you a little bit more about me. Obviously, you heard some basic stats from from Tom there. But I thought a really good way for you to get to know me a bit is to go back to where I was, age seven. So I recently discovered um, my RE exercise book from school when I was seven. Um, And they used to do this wonderful thing where you'd get to write down your thoughts at the end of each topic and and see what you'd learnt. So I'd like to share some of my thoughts, age seven, on various religious topics. So first of all, I was asked, what do you think about baptism? And seven-year-old Paloma said, it's a good idea because I admit, even I have done some bad things. I was then asked, what do you think about epiphany? So when the, the kings came to visit Jesus after his birth. And my only response was, it must have been hard to wait 12 more days than we do for presents. <laughs> Valid point. I was then asked, what is Easter? What have you learned about what Easter is? And I said, I think it's when Jesus died. He had some hot cross buns and the Jews were fed up with him. That's one perspective. And then finally, I was asked, um, what are some of the milestones in your life? Um, And in, in year one, I'd written, I found maths hard then, but I was only five. And then my ambition for the future was stated as, marry a nice man, have maybe one child, and then become a pop star. And I've spoken to my boyfriend. He's very happy with all those ambitions, so we'll, I'll keep you posted. So like I say, we're talking about relationships tonight. I read a statistic which said that 50% of the UK population are married, a further 10% are unmarried but living as a couple, and the other 40% are single. Now, I wonder if those statistics are representative of, of us in the room now. Also, I'm aware that we're going to be hugely diverse in terms of age, And not only age, but church experience. There might be people here for whom this is your first time in church. Or there might be some of you for whom you're on your 100th St. Paul's loyalty card. And I've been meaning to suggest this to Tom, that we get St. Paul's loyalty cards. You know, you get a stamp every Sunday you come. And maybe after 10 you get a prize or whatever we can offer without triggering another reformation. So tonight, talking about relationships, I want to talk as broadly as possible. I want to talk not only about romantic relationships between boyfriends, girlfriends, husbands, wives, but also about the relationships we have with our friends, our families, our colleagues. Because ultimately, at some point, we're all affected by relationships. 
And I want everything I say tonight to be framed in the truth that this passage speaks of. The passage says that God is love. So I want everything I say to be in the context of the God who is love. So like I said, sermon on relationships. We're in a sermon series at the moment about living distinct lives. How as Christians can we live differently? But before I talk about how we can live differently, I'd like to touch on some of the ways we can't live differently, because I think this is really important, so bear with me. First thing we can't do differently as Christians is we can't treat God like a magic wand. He's not the heavenly version of Tinder. He's not the heavenly version of Match.com. God doesn't go around just plopping perfect relationships into our lives. Obviously, we should pray about relationships, and we should talk to God about that, and he's faithful to that. But we can't expect him just to drop a perfect best friend or a perfect partner into our lives. He's not a slot machine, and you insert prayer and you get relationship out on the other side. And I say this because I spent a regrettable amount of time in my teenage years thinking he was. The second thing we can't do differently as Christians is expect an exemption from pain or uncertainty or difficulty. And I say this because I've seen so many friends walk away from God because they thought that being a Christian meant having a permanent smile on your face and this sort of tingly warm feeling inside. And I'm sure as we all know, the reality isn't that. And when the reality didn't meet their expectation, their response was to walk away from God. And as sad as that is, I think we have to be realistic that that happens. We don't have to look much further than the life of Jesus and so many other characters in the Bible to see that suffering is a very real part of life, which all of us face. Bear with me at this point. I know it's bleak. We're getting there. The other thing we can't do differently as Christians is be permanently fulfilled or permanently satisfied by our relationships. We're all imperfect. As I say, I've been imperfect for 21 years now. Um, And ultimately, at some point, we fail. And so we're never going to find that perfect fulfillment in our relationships. Okay, bleak stuff out the way. We're now getting on to the good bits. So Christians can live distinct lives. We can live differently because of the difference that Jesus makes to us. But before I talk about three ways that we can live differently, I just want to talk about very quickly why we should live differently. I think the most important reason is that it glorifies God. It's what God calls us to do. As his people, he wants us to be set apart and live differently. Not only does it glorify God, but it also has this incredible positive spillover impact on us. It can richly bless our lives and richly bless those around us. But I do think that must come secondary to wanting to glorify God. So that's the why. What about the how? So I just want to talk about three ways that as Christians we can live distinctly in our relationships. First of all, we can model the perfect relationship. Secondly, we can love from a place of fulfillment. And thirdly, we can be set free from lies. So firstly, modeling the perfect relationship. Something that really irritates me is when people use the phrase made for each other. You know when they say, oh, this couple are made for each other or this group of friends, they were just made for each other. I think that puts far too much pressure on us, imperfect as we are, to be somebody else's perfect complement. Ultimately, there's only one circumstance in which that's actually true, and that's in our relationship with God. We were literally made for God. I want you to consider this for a moment. When God was creating the universe, in the back of his mind, his guiding principle was that he wanted a relationship with you, with every single one of you. That's what he was thinking. And so when you were made, you were made for him and by him. 
we can see the example of the perfect relationship in Jesus Christ. Now, as Christians, we believe that Jesus Christ was God in human form. And if anyone there, if anyone here doesn't yet believe that, I'd love you to come and talk to me afterwards, and I can explain what it was that convinced me. But essentially, we believe that God made the world perfect, and we were in perfect relationship with him. And then we, through our bad decisions and mistakes, which the Bible calls sin, chose to walk away from that perfect relationship. Now, I think at that point, God would have been perfectly entitled to turn around and say, actually, no thank you. But he didn't. He loved us too much, and so he pursued us. He came down to earth in the person of Jesus Christ and died for us. And by dying for us, he made us perfect in God's sight so that we can stand before God, perfect and blameless, not because of what we do, not by our efforts, not because we're great, but because God's love for us was great. There's a very famous passage in 1 Corinthians 13. I'm sure a lot of you have heard it. It often gets read at funerals and weddings. And it talks about um, what love looks like. So it says, love is patient, love is kind. It does not envy, it does not boast, it is not proud. It is not rude, it is not self-seeking, it is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Now, someone once challenged me to put my name in that passage in the place of the word love. Now, just give you a second now. Think about that. Put your name in instead of the word love. So it talks about love being patient, kind, not easily angered, not self-seeking. As I say, I feel pretty uncomfortable with that because I'm not those things all the time. You just have to ask my mum. I'm not always patient. I'm not always kind. I'm definitely self-seeking and I definitely keep a record of wrongs. But try this one. Put Jesus' name in that passage, in the place of the word love. And it reads, Jesus is patient. Jesus is kind. Jesus does not boast. He is not self-seeking, and so on. And what we get is a perfect description of the person of Jesus Christ. So when I talk about modeling the perfect relationship, I'm talking about being those characteristics, just as Jesus was. And we have the opportunity to do that in the lives of our friends, our families, our colleagues, whatever. So the second thing that Christians can do differently in their relationships is love from a place of fulfillment. Now, I've not forgotten what I said earlier about not being able to be fulfilled by our relationships, but this is something different. Ultimately, we all look for fulfillment. We look for it in different places. Perhaps we look for it in family or friends or our colleagues. We might look for it in work, in money, in status, Or even, and this is something I saw a lot of at university, in alcohol, in sex, in parties. Now, none of these things is wrong in themselves, but ultimately they're not going to fulfill us. They're not going to be the thing that permanently satisfies us. But what the passage we've just read tells us is that perfect fulfillment can be found. And it can be found in the love that God has for us. So in verse 11 and verse 18, it talks about God's love being made perfect and us being made complete. And that's something that happens only in relationship with God. Now, I just want to clarify, I'm not talking about feeling here. I'm talking about fact. So, obviously, we still have good days. We still have bad days. God doesn't come in and just override our emotions. And like I said earlier, it's not just a tingly feeling inside all the time. But the fact that God loves you becomes just that. It's a fact. It's something we can cling to even when we don't want to believe it or don't feel like we believe it at all. The thing I really love about the cross, which, as I said, is the symbol of God's perfect love for us, 
is it happened in history. So it doesn't matter what kind of day I have. It doesn't matter if I'm in a good mood, if I've made some mistakes, or if I'm in a terrible mood. Ultimately, Jesus died on a cross for me, and that's set in history. Nothing can change that. So as I said at the beginning, I'm currently in a relationship um, and have been for eight months with my boyfriend, John, who's absolutely wonderful. And until my relationship with John, I had never been told I love you in a romantic way. And for years, this is something I really struggled with, and it became a point of insecurity in my life. And I found it really difficult to love other people because I was too concerned about making sure they'd love me back. And there was this real, real insecurity in the way I approached relationships. And when my friends were in a difficult time or I came across people who were just a bit difficult to love, I couldn't do that because I didn't have the guarantee that they would love me in return. But it was at university, in a time when I wasn't in relationship, that I realised I already had I love you. I had the biggest and most perfect and strongest I love you that I could ever ask for. And that was in Jesus. As I say, when Jesus was on the cross, he was saying, I love you. With his arms stretched out, that was his act of loving me. And like I said, that's set in history. So now that frees me up to go into my relationships, not relying on my own strength, but relying on his strength. And knowing that I don't need to be fulfilled and satisfied by that other person. I've been satisfied, I've been loved, and I can love in response. This passage talks about loving because we were first loved. And that's what I mean by loving from a place of fulfillment. And the third thing we can do differently as Christians is we can be set free from lies. Now, talk about lies might sound a little bit strange, so I'll just explain what I mean. Ultimately, every day, we're hit by a barrage of lies. We're told that life is going to be made perfect when we buy the latest product. Or we're told that we can do everything in our own strength. Although I'm not convinced by these, Nor am I convinced by the fact that eating yoghurt is the most life-changing thing you can do, which is what the women in yoghurt adverts want us to believe. We live in what is sometimes described as a post-truth society, which means that we've sort of done away with this concept of true and false, and we can all come up with our own set of true and false. But I think this stands contrary to what Jesus claims about himself. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And if Jesus is truth, and if God's word is truth, then that makes a huge difference to the way we do relationships. So I just wanted to look at a couple of examples of of lies we might be told in relationships. For example, relationships make you complete. Having the perfect set of friends at work or having the perfect marital relationship, that's what makes you complete. I think that's a lie. Like I said, we're all imperfect. We all fail at some point. And so perfect relationships and perfect satisfaction and perfect fulfillment can't be found there. Another one, and this is one I struggled with for years, it's a failure to be single. That's a lie. Sometimes people are single. Sometimes they're not. And if I didn't have a God who walked alongside me and encouraged me and told me that that was a lie, then I probably would have kept believing it. And another relationship lie we get told, you're not valuable unless you've got lots and lots of friends. If God made us, then there's beauty in every single one of us. And I believe God died on the cross for every single person, and therefore there is value in every single person. We often say that things are worth the price people will pay for them. So expensive art is valuable because somebody will pay millions of pounds for it. Jesus was willing to pay the price of his life, his own perfect life for you, 
And therefore, there's incredible value in every single person, regardless of how many friends you have, regardless of whether you're in a relationship. So those are just three ways I think we can live distinctly as Christians in our relationships. So I've done that. I've done a three-point sermon. I've made a sort of couple of jokes that may or may not have been funny. But what next? What does this actually mean for us? I think there are two fairly important practical things that come as a result of this. Firstly, it is absolutely crucial that we know and experience the love of God. There may be people here who, when I was talking about loving from a place of fulfillment or knowing you're loved by God, you might not have known what that meant in your life. And if that's you, I would love to encourage you to come up for prayer when we have ministry time later and ask God to to let you experience his fulfillment. Or it might be a case of you having the sort of knowledge up here that God loves you, but not quite having the same knowledge in your heart. And so we can pray that God will sync the two of them up. Or it could be the other way around. Your heart might be racing for you and you just need to sort the head bit out. Either way, we know that God is faithful when we ask him to come to us. And the second thing, and this flows from the first, is that we're called to share that love. Obviously, we can't do that until we've known and experienced the love of God ourselves. But once we have, we have the power to go out into the world, to go into relationships that are difficult or costly and love people because God has given us the strength to do that. And if we find fulfillment in God, and if we acknowledge that we were first loved by him, then loving other people is a very natural response to that. Amen.